There we go. Okay. All right. So get into our, finish up our third week here. A um, couple things coming up due. Uh, remember the dates up here are the official ones. I will try to update the ones on uh, Blackboard, on D2L as I can. So they're, they match. But if I give you something in here, that should be, especially should be later, it should be the date that we, that we go by. So homework one, I know still says it's due today. If you got it done, that's great, you're ahead. But you do have until Monday to submit it for full credit. So that's mainly because we'll be starting on chapter four today, and I probably won't be finishing chapter four till Monday. So you have through the day Monday, you can go ahead and look ahead if you wanna get it done for class Monday. Remember, the lecture videos are up there on YouTube, so you can go ahead and watch them if you want to work on that over this weekend before I've actually covered it in class. And you do have until the end of the day just if you're submitting it up on D2L. So if you want to wait until I lecture on them on Monday and finish up those last few questions uh, for the homework, you can do that as well. And then as long as you submit it up on D2L, so when I tell you the 16th, you've got until 6 a.m. on the 17th to be able to uh, do that. Um, the review quizzes are up available on um, D2L as well. So those cover, there's three of them for this unit. They cover chapters one. One covers chapters two and three, and the other one covers chapter four. They're available until 8.30 a.m. on the 18th. Why such a strange time? Well, that's when our exam starts. So you've got up until the exam time to use them. Remember the first time you take them, you get uh, a partial credit, some extra credit for, the, for taking it. So first time is the one that counts for you. And then after that, you can take them as many times as you want up there. If you want to review anything, if you want to review that material for the exam, you can take them as many times as you want. If you got, say, an eight the first time, you can play around with them as much as you want because it's not going to affect that. If you got a two the first time, it's also not going to help and bring your grade up for the extra credit. But it is there. It will give you a little bit of extra credit, up to three points towards the class. And it does add up. So make sure you at least go take them once. If you get half a point on each, it's going to add up to a few points at the end of the semester. And who knows if that'll make the difference on anything. So certainly it doesn't cost you anything to be able to do those. Uh, then one week from today, we do have our first exam, which covers chapters one through four. I'm going to go over that in a minute. And then coming up after that, we have the first of the article reviews. I uh, do. I strongly recommend, I know I, I, you, there's three, you only have to do two. I really recommend you do the first one unless you've got some other classes that are really slamming you at this point. Just because you get the feedback, you get to see whether you did well or not, how well you did on it, and whether you need to look at, the, look at changes for the third one. If you skip the first one, then you've only got the last two to count. So I do strongly recommend that you do, that you do the first one, uh, do the 23rd. Remember, there are a set of articles up there on uh, D2L, so you can take a look. You're welcome to select one of those. For the exam, and I apologize because I have limited board space, I kind of had to squeeze this down in here to give you the information as to what's going to be on the exam. Exam is worth 50 points. So I break it down. There are 30 multiple choice questions on it, one point each. So that's 30 of the points. Uh, there are 10 per unit, not per chapter. I've broken this down into units. So our first unit was chapter one. Our second unit was chapters two and three. And then our third unit is chapter four. So don't, all the chapters are not equally weighted. So 10 questions will come from chapter one, five from chapter two, and five from chapter three, and then 10 from chapter four. So you can use that to focus where you're studying on it. Chapters two and three will not be covered as much in depth. They kind of tie together with the history and the gravity, everything together. And chapters one and four will be a little more weighted. So just so you know on that, that will be 10 questions per unit, not, per, not questions per chapter. Then there are uh, essays. There are a total of four essays on there. The first one you have to do. It'll be several different parts. And essays, again, for me, you, these are things you can answer usually in a sentence or two. I might ask you to draw a diagram. They're not a full formal essay. The first one is worth 10 points. That you'll have to do. Then there are three more, one from each unit. You get to choose two of them to do. So that way, if I pick out one of those that just completely slips your mind, hey, you can skip that one and do the other two. Um, 
but I only grade the two that you do. I don't, you don't do all three and I take your best grade. You have, you have to select which one you do not want me to grade. So yeah, you do have to kind of make that decision. And then my little cryptic scribbles down at the bottom is the extra credit on the exam. Uh, the photo of the day questions. So the ones that we went over in class, I will ask questions. I will give you a multiple choice question on them. Those are an extra credit point towards the exam. So definitely go back and review the ones that we covered in class. It's only the ones for the days we've met in class. So August, what is it, 26th and 28th, and then September 4th, and the 9th and the 11th, and then it will be, what, the 16th. Won't have one for the 18th. That would go towards the next exam. And I'll choose four or five of those. It depends on how things go. I will put those in there. But those are extra credit. And do remember that key point uh, sheet that I gave you at the very beginning, first week. You can bring that. that that's, that, that's that you're allowed to use on the exam. So bring that in. Make any notes about it. If you want to write in a couple comments about what the pictures were those days to remind you, that's perfectly fine. Doesn't mean my question isn't going to ask you exactly just what was the picture, but I might ask something about the picture or something that I talked about in class. But maybe that'll help to jog your memory when, you're, when you come to, the, uh, come to the questions there. So don't forget that if you have, the, you have those key point sheets for chapters one through four, those, nothing else, can't staple anything to them. You can write on them. Anything you want to write on them is perfectly fine. And then I will get you the set for the next uh, exam. Uh, probably next week, or at the end of, well, the beginning of two weeks from now when we're getting ready to start on the next unit. So just want to remind you that. I'll remind you of that again on Monday as we come through. But the thing you should be looking at right now is the, is the homework. That's the big thing that's coming up due in the near future. And that'll help you studying for the exam because homework questions and exam questions and um, essay questions will be somewhat similar. So the type of questions I ask on the homework are similar to what the essays will be with the exception of any of the ones that involve a mathematical calculation would not be on the exam. So you don't need a calculator or anything for the exam. If you wish to use one, I don't have a problem with it. You can't use your phone, obviously, as the calculator, but if you really want a calculator there, uh, the worst I'd ask you to do is maybe divide a couple numbers or multiply. I mean, it would be very, very basic, anything that I would put on the exam. Uh, if you looked at some of the questions, a couple of them do have a little more detail involved in them. Those are the ones that we did on the first lab. The calculation problems like that will not be something that will come up on the exams. All right, questions. All right, well, I'm going to close that for right now. Come up, oh, wrong one. Remember which button to push. Oh, will this erase? No. Um, all right. Too many new buttons here to push. Clear. Erase. There we go. Almost erased. <laughs> now we're erased. Okay. Not so bad now, but once I get the lecture slides up there, the marks would remain. So, all right, our picture of today for today, um, had to kind of zoom out a little bit. It's a really long uh, vertical picture. This is what is known as the heart nebula. Might look vaguely, if you studied some kind of anatomy, it looks vaguely like a human heart um, stretched in this section right here. Um, the second nebula is actually the little one up here, the fish head. You see the little fish kind of going out? Maybe. Okay, you can see where some of these get their names, especially once somebody says something to you or, or describes it. You might see it just because our minds don't like random patterns. They like to put some kind of order to them. That's why we see shapes in clouds, right? The cloud doesn't really look like a whale or anything else. It just, our mind doesn't like random patterns. So it tends, once, and once we say something, if you can see the vague features, you know, a fish's mouth there and maybe the gills, going up there. You know, you can see a little fish, maybe you can see a little fish head there. This is an example of an emission nebula. An emission nebula is emitting light. So it's the emission of light and it's glowing here. And all this red glow is due to hydrogen gas. Hydrogen gas, hydrogen is the most common element in the universe by far. And in fact, if you pick a random, random atom out of the universe someplace, 
you got a 90% chance that it's a hydrogen atom, 10% that it's helium. That doesn't leave much room for everything else. So, I mean, we're unusual here on Earth when we have lots of things like lots of iron and carbon and other elements. In terms of the universe and in terms of stars and all of the other stars, galaxies, all the other material, almost everything is hydrogen. It's about 90% and 10%. And the rest is the rounding errors. So it's not exactly 90%, but it's 89.99% or something and, you know, 9 point something. And there's some fraction of a percent that is heavier elements. But that's the things that make us up here. When a hydrogen is excited, we'll talk about uh, coming up in probably next week, we'll start talking about that in chapter five. Um, we'll look at uh, how it glows and it will glow. It gives off a very specific red color. And it's excited by the cluster of stars that's forming at the center. So there's actually this bright bluish section is a set of bright stars. They emit all, they give off all the energy to energize all this hydrogen and cause it to glow. So it's really a region where stars are forming and have formed within the last million years or two. So they're relatively new stars compared to things like our sun, four and a half billion years old. These are one and a half million years old. That's a big difference, right? That's a factor of a thousand, more than a thousand, several thousand. Going from one and a half million to four and a half billion is a very big difference. So these are extremely young stars. And we're still seeing the signs of their formation, all of the dark, dusty areas and all of the material that's left over from their formation. The other thing to mention here is that the photographer had a, a little surprise in his image. This little streak of light here is actually a meteor. Meteor is a tiny bit of material left over from a comet that happens to be burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. If you've ever seen a shooting star, a shooting star and a meteor are the same thing. Shooting star is kind of the common term for it. Meteor is the uh, more technical term for it. But all it is is a little tiny bit of dust, grain of sand, that burns up in the Earth's atmosphere. We can predict when a meteor shower will occur, but you could not, there's no way to be able to plan this. You don't know when a meteor is going to occur here. You could take this image a thousand more times and never get a meteor through it. So he just happened to get one through. And does it destroy his image or kind of add to it? You can decide, it can be up to you. And it ruined his image by getting this streak of light that isn't part of this nebula, which is actually something within our own atmosphere. Or does it kind of add to it that he happens to get this little thing from our, from our atmosphere that, uh, that adds to it as well, that maybe adds a little bit to the image. All right, questions? Yes? Um, is that the heart nebula? Is that what it's this is the heart nebula, yes. Okay, and what's the actual technical name? The technical name is IC1805. It's IC is the index catalog. I'm not going to test you on that. Don't worry. That's not, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to ask you what IC means. Uh, that's well beyond what I do in this course. But IC is just the index catalog. It's the name of the catalog. And 1805 means it's the 1,805th entry in that catalog. That's just what it means. But yeah, the heart nebula, I tend to go by the more common names for you. I'm not going to ask you. I wouldn't be asking, you know, we saw the heart nebula. Was it IC1805, 1803? That's, that's not, I'm trying to get you something a little more general about the image. You know, there are stars forming here, et cetera, that kind of, that kind of stuff. Others? All right. Well, we were almost done with chapter three, and then we can get on to our chapter for the week. So we are running slightly behind, which is normal for this, this time of year. We'll run a little bit behind at the beginning, and then I will get, we will get caught up um, over the next few weeks. So uh, we should be pretty much back on track to what the syllabus says in another couple of weeks. The next few chapters, we'll get a chance to get caught up. We're only doing one chapter a week um, until we start getting into planets again. So should have a could be getting back caught up closer to what we're doing. We're not doing too bad. We will be starting on chapter four this week, which is what we were supposed to cover this week in the first place. But the last thing that I had not covered here was orbital motion. Last time I talked about gravity and Newton and how they explained the motions of the planets. So astronomers like Tycho and Kepler 
gave us the initial ideas of how orbits worked and changed the idea that an orbit had to be a circle. Newton gave us the physical understanding how these actually worked. And the last thing I wanted to look at was a little bit of information on orbits themselves. So I'll give you a few definitions here. And just to define a couple of points, we have perihelion and aphelion. These are positions that relate relative to the sun. So any object orbiting the sun will have a perihelion, its closest approach when it comes closest to the sun, and an aphelion when it is furthest away from the sun. Let me do this so I don't. So it just a, 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 uh, tells you how close the object is getting. Now in a perfectly circular orbit, you wouldn't have these. You'd always be at the same distance. There would be no closest approach, no furthest approach. So perihelion tells you when you're closest to the sun. So any object, the Earth, Mars, a comet, uh, anything orbiting the sun would have a perihelion. And an aphelion just tells when, they, when it is closest and when it is furthest away. We do the same thing around the Earth. The prefix is what means closest or furthest, so perigee for a satellite. It's when the satellite is closest to the Earth. Apogee is when the uh, satellite is furthest away from the Earth. So any satellite in an elliptical orbit is going to do the same thing. Uh, you can do this for other planets. There is a spacecraft, and in fact, the picture from Sunday was actually a video of the spacecraft around, that's orbiting around Jupiter right now, the Juno spacecraft. It's in a very elliptical orbit, so they were talking about perijove, jove for Jupiter, jovian. Uh, so it was talking about perijove when it got when it was coming in closest, and it zooms in really close to Jupiter, and then spends most of its time very far away. So the, you can apply them to anything. There'd be a term for Mars for any other object that we'd be that we would use these for. The common ones that we use are perihelion and aphelion, talking about the solar system and perigee and apogee talking about the Earth. It just refers to the closest and furthest approach. Now, how do we determine these? Well, the orbits are determined by what Newton gave us. Now we can get really accurate positions for the planets. And this was important because, if you remember, our observations were getting better and better and now we've got telescopes coming in and our observations are we're getting more and more accurate observations. So we need a better method to be able to understand them. So things that we had used previously, the geocentric model with all the epicycles, gone. Can't explain the orbits accurately compared to how well we can measure now. Worked fine for a long time. Even Copernicus's idea, right? Sun at the center but circular orbits, still not working. So. We really needed Newton's gravity to really give us these, air, these very accurate positions. And when we look at the planets overall, we find a number of different things about the planets. First of all, planets closer to the sun will move faster. So Mercury whips around the sun really fast. Neptune, way out at the edge of the solar system, moves rather slowly. Um, Mercury takes about three months to whip around the sun, so its year is three months long. Neptune, well, if you lived on Neptune, you'd never make it to one year old. It takes 192 years. You gotta really, I mean, that's longer, as far as we know, that's a lot longer than anybody's ever lived. So 192 years for it to make one orbit around the sun. So... You can, you, you know, the year is different, but we know that the planets move at different speeds depending on there, and that, that should make sense. Now that we're starting to get an understanding of gravity, that should make sense. Jupiter, uh, Mercury's closer to the sun, stronger gravity, larger force, bigger acceleration, it's moving faster. Neptune, further away, gravitational force is less, less acceleration, slower motion. So... That hopefully makes sense, and we can apply that to other things as well. The eccentricities. Remember lab last time we looked at eccentricities? The orbital eccentricities are small. All of the planets are pretty much in circular orbits. Why did it take us so long? Why did it take until the time of Kepler to realize that orbits were elliptical? Because they really weren't very different from circles. They were really pretty close. 
Um, they orbit in the same plane, flat piece of paper. I think I've done that before. Draw a solar system on it, you made a very good approximation. It's pretty much how, the, how flat the solar system is. And in the same direction. So if you look down, take off, go up above the solar system, look down on the Earth's north pole, every single planet is going around counterclockwise. So there are some things there that we'd look at. Uh, if we talked about planets, we'd, we'd kind of, if we're doing a planetary course, we'd go a little more, how does this explain how the solar system works? And we'll kind of skip off that as we're going to jump into the, kind of skip the solar system here and then go out to talk about, well, we'll talk about the sun as an introduction to other stars. Comets and asteroids are really very different. So comets have really elliptical orbits. They have really high eccentricities. 0.9 or so, you know, they're, they're really, they're coming in close to the sun and they're going way out in the depths of the solar system. In fact, Halley's Comet has an orbit of about 76 years, spends, um, I think it's about six months inside the orbit of Mars. It comes in pretty close and whips around six months to a year, I don't remember the exact number, but it's 76 years. It spends decades way out there at Neptune way out beyond the, way out at the edge of the solar system. Right? Remember, that's what Kepler's second law tells us. Come in close to the sun, you move really quick. So you got that short period of time. In this case, it was back in the mid-1980s to be able to see Halley's Comet, and then it's gone and won't come back again for a lifetime. So not for another 76 years from the 1980s, so we're talking like 2060-something that it will actually come back, it'll be back again close to the inner solar system. So these are actually rather different. They can also be tilted. They don't quite fit on that piece of paper properly. You need another piece of paper that's tilted to kind of show their orbits. So they're a little bit different. Satellite orbits. Um, first satellite was Sputnik, launched in 1957. So it's been a little over 60 years that we've had satellites in orbit around the Earth. And we can have uh, objects launched with different velocities. So in order to get something into orbit, we've got to get it with the right velocity. If you send it with too small of a velocity, right, if I want to launch this into, into space, right, if I throw it up far enough, it comes right back down. Right? I can't throw it hard enough to get it to launch into space on Earth. If we were on a small asteroid, I could do that. I could launch it into orbit. Gravity's a lot less, and I could throw it. You could find this velocity. I could actually throw it into orbit or cause it to escape completely. Have to be standing on a pretty small object. Wouldn't be able to do that on the moon. Um, you'd need something even uh, lower gravity than that. So if you send it with not enough, it comes right back down to the Earth. So you launch a rocket up. If you don't give it enough velocity, it will turn around and come back down. If you give it a large velocity, then it launches out. It follows the green path here, number two and it escapes from the Earth. Not the Earth's gravity, the Earth. Remember, gravity can never be zero. So no matter where an object is, the Earth is always pulling on it. However, if it's moving fast enough, it gets far enough away that the gravity is so small that the Earth could never slow it down and bring it back. So many of the spacecraft that we've launched out there, the Voyager spacecraft that were launched back in the 70s are still traveling out Earth's still pull, pulling on them, but with not enough force to ever be able to slow them down and bring them back. So they are on this kind of trajectory. They're heading away from the Earth, and they'll continue to head out into interstellar space. If you get it just right, you send it with an intermediate velocity, and then you can send it into a circular or elliptical orbit. That's how we launch a satellite. If you want to put a satellite in orbit on Earth, we know how we can calculate how much energy it needs, Launch it with that amount of energy, get it up to the proper orbit. Those orbits can vary quite a bit. Some things orbit in very low orbits. Hubble Space Telescope, only a couple hundred miles above the Earth's surface. So is the International Space Station. They're only a few hundred miles up. Relatively low orbits. Uh, communication satellites are uh, tens of thousands of miles up. So they're way up above the Earth's surface. So if you look at... Uh, images from the International Space Station, you can see the Earth, you can see some of its curvature, but you don't get a picture of the whole Earth. You, if you're up on the space station, you cannot see the entire Earth from at one time. You can't see that whole ball of the Earth because you're too close to it. Um, the communication satellites, spy satellites put in very high orbit, 
would be able to see, well, half the Earth at one time. Right? Whatever is facing them, they'd be able, they would be able to see the entire Earth. At, they'd be in a much higher orbit. So instead of having a really low orbit down here, you might have an orbit way up here for some of those communications and uh, satellites. Now, number two, number two is what we do for interplanetary spacecraft. Uh, this is one of the uh, Voyager spacecraft. An artist's conception image, right? Not, not an actual photograph of it out there in space. Uh, we'd have no way to be able to get that, but an artist's conception image. Uh, they have to achieve what we call the escape velocity. They have to move fast enough to be able to escape from the Earth. And then with a lot of these, we use gravity to modify their orbits. It takes a lot of energy to send something into space. If you've ever seen the Saturn V rockets that launched the astronauts to the moon, those things are monstrous in size. They're all fuel. So they're essentially sitting on, you know, little top 10% or so is the astronauts and their capsules and the lunar lander and the command module and the rest of it's fuel to launch it off the Earth. So you need a lot of fuel. So if you're going to try to send something to the moon, it takes a lot of energy. If you want to get something out into space, it takes a similar amount of energy. So one of the things that we do now is use gravity to adjust the orbits. So if we want to send something to... Jupiter, we don't just launch it to Jupiter. We might sometimes, we actually launch it to the inner solar system, have it go visit Venus, fly by Venus, pick up some energy from Venus. So it slingshots along Venus, that picks it up and accelerates it. It might come back by Earth, use the Earth's gravity, accelerate it a little bit more. It's free energy. It takes more time, because you've got to go all here and there to get the energy, but it's free. You don't have to use as big of a rocket. You can use a much smaller rocket, enough to get it into an orbit, and then you can use the moon's gravity, the Earth's gravity, the other planet's gravity to be able to accelerate it. Um, the New Horizons craft that went out to Pluto did this. It uses several gravity assists and then actually flew by Jupiter first. Used Jupiter's strong gravity to give it a big push and make it, at the time, the fastest moving spacecraft. Not anymore, I believe the new solar probe is actually moving faster now, that's actually coming in close to the sun. But, there's, uh, but it was the very fastest craft at the time. It still took it 10 years to get out to Pluto. 10 years of traveling to get out there. So uh, Voyager 2 used this to visit four planets. So got our money's worth there because we launched it. Original plan was that they were gonna visit Jupiter and then use Jupiter's gravity to adjust to Saturn. But because back in the 1970s, we were very fortunate that Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune were all lined up on one side of the sun with their orbits, that we could actually use it after Saturn, use Saturn's gravity to redirect it to Uranus and redirect it to Neptune. So we got to visit all four of the outer planets at once. And in fact, Voyager 2 is still the only craft that has ever visited the outer two planets. Uranus and Neptune have only been visited once. There's been talk about others, but there's nothing really even in the planning stages to go back to either of those again. There are some talks to go back. Again, we have a craft around Jupiter right now. There are some talks to missions to go back to Saturn or other missions to Jupiter, but not back out to the outer two planets at this point. All right, so what really happens when we want to look at gravity and orbits and all of this? It really gets complicated. So if we want to figure out the orbit of something in the solar system, a spacecraft going through, we've got to talk about the sun's gravity. If it comes close to a planet, we've got to add in that planet's gravity. If the planet's far enough away, its gravity will be very small. Of course, if it comes close to it, it will be large. But if we really want to figure out the motions, for example, in a star cluster, really, you've got to look at every pair of stars. You can't just say, well, this star and whatever mass is at the center, how does it move? Because all of these other stars will tweak its orbit. So if you really want to do this calculation, it requires massive computers. Because if there are a million stars here, right, the first one, you've got to have a million, you have the first star, you have 999,999 stars pulling on it. Some a lot, some only a little. So you've got to put all of that together to figure out the orbits. And then the next star, you've got to do all of that again. So you can be doing billions upon billions of calculations to figure out what all the forces are, run time forward a fraction of a second, see where everything moves, and then do it all over again. It can be a very tedious thing to do, but this is reality. This is how things actually are. 
And if we want to look at the motions of stars in a cluster or galaxies in a cluster, we really need to look at all the different forces. Not everything in the universe, right? You, you can ignore the force of the Earth. The Earth is pulling on every single one of these stars. Its gravitational force is negligible. The sun is pulling on them. It's negligible. It's so small, it's not going to make any difference. But you can't ignore many of the other stars here. So how did this work? Well, we actually have used some of this and Newton's law of gravity um, to discover a new planet. So the first new planet that was ever discovered, we had the five original ones, Copernicus added in Earth for us or told us that Earth was a planet. Um, Uranus was discovered in 1781. First new, first new planet to be discovered, he discovered it quite by chance. He was looking for nearby stars that he could measure parallax to. He was studying comets. He was looking for objects, and he found this object there. Um, found that it, that it existed, followed its orbit, and found that it was in a pretty much a circular orbit. And turns out that it was the newest planet to be discovered. This was less than 100 years after Newton's work was published. So Newton's laws of gravity were working great, being accepted, so calculations were more made. Let's determine the orbit of this planet and let's follow it along. Let's see where it ends up. And it was found not to be orbiting exactly in accordance with Newton's laws. Well, that can mean two things. That can mean Newton was wrong and there's something else. Gravity doesn't work when you get that far out in the solar system. Or it could mean that there's another planet out there. If there were another unknown planet out beyond this, then that could affect its gravity. And two astronomers, Adams and Leverrier, went through calculations. What kind of planet, where would the planet have to be? How massive would it have to be in order to explain the deviations that we see, assuming that Newton is correct, that Newton's laws were correct? They did the calculations and actually Neptune was discovered very close to what was predicted. So very close to the area that was predicted. And that was in the, uh, uh, what was that, mid-1800s that it was discovered. So you could actually use it, and it was a great triumph for Newton's gravity to be able to explain and predict that there should be a new planet out there that was then discovered. So Uranus discovered by accident, Neptune predicted to exist and then found. So finishing up this chapter, again, I gave you some of the uh, terminology in terms of aphelion, perihelion, positions closest to and furthest from the sun, escape velocity, you can escape from the object if you're traveling that fast. Remember, the gravitational force still extends out as far as you can go. So even if a spacecraft is at the edge of the solar system, Earth's still pulling on it. There's, it cannot escape the Earth's gravity, but it can be moving fast enough that Earth's gravity will never be able to stop it. Uh, we talked about what the reality is like, and it's really complicated. If you want to calculate orbits of something in the solar system, you have to consider the sun and the object, but you also have to include any other objects that come close to it. So if a comet comes close to Jupiter or close to the Earth, that can affect its orbit. For the most part, you can look at just the sun and the object, but when it starts coming close to anything, such as Uranus and Neptune, then it becomes important. So... Questions for chapter three. All right, well, we will move out to get started on chapter four. We obviously will not get through that, so we have time for lab today. And then next week, we'll be back to just a one lab after the exam. You'll have one lab after the exam. So Monday, Monday, we'll finish chapter four completely and probably get started on our chapter five for that week. Um, chapter four starts off with a couple of different things. The first, uh, first two are relatively short, just a couple of slides each. I'm going to see if I can get through, uh, how much of this I can get through for you before we have to break for lab. Um, but the first is the coordinate systems that we use. So I wanted to at least give you a brief introduction to those. These ones you hopefully have some knowledge of, latitude and longitude. That's what we use here on Earth. Latitude measures how far you are north or south of the equator. So the equator is the reference point. And if you go north of the equator, further north you get, that, that latitude gets larger and larger. So halfway up would be 45 degrees. Um, we're not quite that far up. We're closer to about 40 degrees in here. 
um, at our location. If you went all the way up to the North Pole, you'd be up to a 90 degrees latitude. But it's just measured north or south of the equator. So the equator is the reference point for that. The other coordinate that we use is the longitude. And again, that's an angular distance, so we measure everything in angles. And that depends on uh, a point that is selected. When we, do no when we do north and south, equator is a natural selection. It's very distinct. It's right in the middle. When we try to make longitude lines, they're all the same. There's no difference between the one going through Greenwich, England, which is our standard point, and the one going through Washington, D.C., or the one going through Tokyo. Or what they're, they're, I mean, there's no reason you have to pick any specific one. However, early on, back in the early 1700s, 1600s, you know, trying to determine longitude, every country used their own. So French used the meridian that went through Paris. English would have used London, etc. You know, and so on across the world. Spanish would have used Madrid. Makes differences because the coordinates don't match up from country to country. So at some point, they had to pick one. This was done back in the 1700s. So, of course, the great naval power was England, and it ended up being England's was the one that was chosen as the reference point, and we still use that today. It doesn't really make any difference. It's just a convention that you have to pick one to measure thing, everything from. But you could have easily picked any other as well. So you then measure west. So this would be England here, and then measuring west across the Atlantic towards the, towards the Americas here, or east out through Europe and out to Asia, that direction. So if you wanted to find a specific point on the Earth, you can give a latitude and a longitude. And I've given you the numbers for the Washington Monument. Don't worry, I won't ask you to repeat those as well. But if you go to that latitude and that longitude, unless I made a typo in putting up the slide, you will end up, you'll be standing at the Washington Monument. If you want to give the latitude and longitude of this classroom, you know, we could figure out right where we are. Any specific latitude and longitude will tell you exactly where you are on the Earth's surface. You need those two points. If I just give one, then you could be at a range of places. If I just give you a latitude, well, you could be here, but you could also head further west. And if you walk straight west, due west, then you would be staying at the same latitude but your longitude will be changing. So you need both of them to really pinpoint exactly where you are on the Earth's surface. We do the same thing in the sky. We use two different terminology. We don't use latitude and longitude, but we use some things that are similar. We use declination and right ascension. So declination is an angular distance measured north or south of the celestial equator. I hope that sounds familiar to what I just told you for latitude. It's the same thing. We measure relative to the equator. So the celestial equator is here. You can go, that's zero, and you can go up north of it, up towards the north celestial pole, which would be 90 degrees. So declination and latitude are very, very similar. And you can also have negative uh, values. Uh, on Earth, we tend to say north and south. So we'd say, Latitude is north or south. In astronomy, they tend to use positive and negative. So positive declination means you're north of the equator. Negative declination means you're south of the equator. So when I gave them here, I said, you know, so much latitude north and west. When I give you here, I just give a value in degrees. If I just say a number of degrees, if it's positive, it's north of the equator. If it were negative, it would be south of the equator. Right ascension would be similar to longitude. And in fact, it is. You do the lines going the other direction, and you have to measure uh, positions. You have to pick out your reference point. So for longitude, we picked out the meridian that happens to go through Greenwich, England. For um, right ascension, we picked out the one that goes through the vernal equinox. Vernal equinox, you might hear that as the first day of spring. Vernal equinox is actually the position of the sun on the sky during the first day of spring. So that would be where the sun would be the first day of spring. This is, this, the ecliptic is the path of the sun. This is the celestial equator. So on that day, the sun is heading northward, slowly moving north, and it passes this point. That's where it would be. That's our reference point. Just like longitude, you could have picked anything else. You could have picked the first day of fall. Coming up, right? And what do we got, about a week or so? Yeah, about 10 days. First day of fall. That's the other point where the sun 
path crosses the celestial equator, except it's moving down. So the sun is getting lower and lower in the sky now. So again, it's just a reference point that you have to pick. You've got to pick out some reference point to measure everything from. And astronomers, again, don't measure east and west of that. They measure only one direction. They only measure to the east. So you go all the way around. Um, but they also don't measure it in degrees. It's measured in hours. So you have degrees of declination. That's just like latitude. But instead, uh, longitude is measured, in, or longitude right ascension is measured in hours. So the 24 hours of right ascension match the 24 hours in a day. And each hour is converts to about 15 degrees. It's a convention of how being able to measure that. So if you knew where something was, you could say it was an hour behind it in terms of its motion in the sky. If the vernal equinox were high up in the sky and something were at an hour of right ascension, you'd know it would be an hour before it would be high up in the sky. So it's a convention that goes back to early observing in terms of being able to do that. And some of those things stick around with us today. The example here, like I gave the example with the Washington Monument, declination, 7.4 degrees. Again, it's, that's positive. If it were below the equator, I would list that as negative. Betelgeuse is one of the bright stars in the constellation of Orion, and it is at a right ascension of almost six hours. Six hours would be about a quarter of the way around the sky from the vernal equinox. So vernal equinox is here. If the vernal equinox was up right now, really high in the sky, we would expect that six hours later, Betelgeuse would be up high in the sky. That's what six hours means. Six hours, six hours behind the uh, standard point. So it's just the convention, again, of how we, how we measure them. They're done in hours, and it would go up to 23 hours and 59 minutes, and then it would cycle back to zero as you've worked your way all the way around and back to the standard point. So right ascension, very similar to longitude. Declination, very similar to latitude. So, yeah. so the first couple sections are really short. Um, we talk about latitude and longitude. That's what we use on Earth. Declination and right ascension do the angular distances and measure positions on the celestial sphere. All right, we got, I'm going to go ahead and get through the next short one, and then we'll leave the other ones for Monday. So I'll at least have gotten through some of this for you and covered most of the uh, question, a lot of the questions on the, exa on, the, on the exam. Hopefully a lot of the questions on the exam, but also questions for the homework. So I want to talk a little bit about the seasons. Seasons are caused by the tilt of the Earth's axis. We are tilted at 23 and a half degrees. So the Earth's North Pole doesn't point straight up. It's tilted, about 20-some degrees. And that is what causes the seasons. One of the uh, misconceptions that sometimes come up is, you know, what about distances? Why doesn't the distance cause the seasons? Right? We're, in, we're in elliptical orbit. Sometimes we're closer to the sun. Sometimes we're further away. Well, that makes sense that it should be warmer when we're closer to the sun. <laughs> and closer and colder when we're further away. Well, we are actually closest to the sun in January. Very beginning of January, January 3rd, 4th, something like that. And it's around July 3rd or 4th that we're furthest away. So it doesn't really match up with our seasons, in this hemisphere at least. And the also, we are in elliptical orbit, but it's only about a 3% change. It's really very small. So if the Earth's, Earth's axis were tilted perfectly straight up, we would have still very slight seasons because of the distance. Get a little bit warmer in January, a little bit cooler in July. But it also does make a prediction. If we just consider, OK, what about the changing di distance? Let's look at a, the scientific method and make a prediction. If we're close to the sun, the entire Earth is closer to the sun. So we would have summer all over the Earth. Six months later, we'd have winter all over the Earth. So the northern and southern hemisphere would have the same seasons. We know that's not correct. Right? We're getting ready. We're heading towards the beginning of fall, end of summer, beginning of fall. If you're down in Australia, they're finishing up winter, getting ready for spring. So south of the equator, we know that the seasons are backwards. Now, the tilt can explain that because you can be tilted towards the sun. The northern hemisphere is leaning towards the sun, and that, give, that will give you the, would give you the summer, 
and the southern hemisphere is tilted away. That's why they're still in winter right now. So the seasons are opposite, which really means that the changing distance doesn't make any difference. If we were in a super elliptical orbit, it could. If we came really close to the sun and really far away, then yes, we could have cases where that would make a big difference. Uh, but not in the case of any of the planets. For any of the planets, the orbits are so circular that the little variation here is overwhelmed by the tilts. So what we want to look at, you know, what is really changing? Here's an example of how we're tilted. This is summertime for the northern hemisphere. We're tilted, so we're kind of leaning towards the sun. This portion of the Earth is now getting really direct sunlight. Sunlight is streaming straight down on us. You go out, go out, to the, go out in the middle of summer, nice sunny day, sun is beating down on you. It's way up high in the sky overhead, and it feels hot. Go out on a winter day, nice clear winter day where the sun's out, doesn't feel as hot, right? You get the sun, it's, it might be bright, especially if you've got a lot of snow on the ground and it's all reflecting the sunlight to you, but you don't feel the heat. And the sun's way down there, it's really low in the sky. It's hitting you much less directly. That's what's happening in the southern hemisphere now. That sunlight is not as concentrated, it's spread out. So the more directly the sunlight hits you, the warmer it's going to be. The other thing that changes is how long the days are. And when I say that, I mean the amount of daylight, right? The day is 24 hours, regardless. But the amount of daylight changes. And we know that, right? In the middle of in June, right? you can get up at 5 o'clock and the sun's coming up. Now it's not, right? Now the sun doesn't rise till like 6.30. And if we wait a, wait a, wait a few months, it's not going to be till 8.30, right? It'll be like 8.30. We'll be starting class. It'll just be dusky out there. So the, when the sun rises and when the sun sets, changes. Because at the end of the class, the sun will be setting at what? 4.30, 5 o'clock, 5.30, something like that in the evening. A lot later than it was in summer when it was 9 or 10 o'clock at night that the sun was actually setting. So the amount of time the sun spends above the horizon changes too. Right? If you've got the sun in the sky for 14 or 15 hours a day, it's going to get warmer than if you only have it for 8 or 9 hours. So you're exposed to the sunlight a lot more. And you have and the opposite for the, uh, for the night, right? Nights get a lot shorter, nights get a lot longer in the winter. So when you add those two things together, that's what's really causing the seasons. And when you look, like if you go far enough north to the Arctic Circle, to get to the Arctic Circle, it's for the U.S., it's the very northern tip of Alaska. It's the only part that is actually north of that. If you go that far north, though, you'll actually find a day, the first day of summer, where the sun never sets. It's up, gets up to a, not a very high height, sinks down, kind of touches the horizon, and then rises again, comes back up. Never goes below the horizon. If you go all the way up to the North Pole, it rises on the first day of spring, March 21st. And if you live at the North Pole right now, you're just getting ready for sunset from six months. You've had six months of daylight. It doesn't get hot. Even though you have the long daylight, it doesn't get hot because the sun's always very low in the sky. It's always that winter sun. It gets 20 degrees above the horizon, about two-fifths worth. That's about it. So it's always, the sunlight is always spread out at the North Pole, but it's constantly in sunlight. Kind of in the middle here is where we get the extreme changes. Right? We, get, we go from really hot weather in the summer to really cold weather in the winter. If you're down near the equator or in the tropical regions, the sun's always hitting you directly. You know, if you're in Hawaii, the sun at noon is always almost straight overhead. It goes a little bit to the north or a little bit to the south, but you're always getting that direct sunlight, even though the days don't change as much. If you're in Hawaii, pretty much sunlight, uh, daylight, it changes. It might change an hour or so, but it's always about 12 hours. It doesn't change at all. If you're on the equator, it's always 12 hours. 12 hours of sunlight, 12 hours of darkness. It's still hot because of how directly the sun is hitting us. It's in between in these middle latitudes where everything kind of combines together to give us the seasons. So, again, I've kind of explained this already, but this is just putting in what I've been talking about, printed up on the screen. During the summer, what's happening? The sun is more directly overhead. From our location on the first day of summer, it's about, it hits an altitude of about 70 degrees. 90 straight overhead. 70 is pretty close to straight overhead, a little off. So it's beating directly down on us. In winter, it's about 25, 26 degrees. It's way off. Even, even at noon, it's way off there on the horizon. So 
when you take your observations, if you take, took one in August when we first started, you should have seen a relatively long, uh, short, short, sorry, short shadow, wrong semester. Short shadow. By the time we get into November, you're going to see really long shadows because the sun, even at the same time of day, is getting much lower in the sky. So sun is more directly overhead and in the sky for more than 12 hours, heating us up more. I mentioned the Arctic Circle. That's where we're up for 24 hours or more. If you get to the tropics, we have the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn in the northern and southern hemispheres. At those locations, the sun is at the zenith, straight overhead once a year. If you go further south, between towards the equator, it'll be overhead two days a year. But it's always close to straight overhead. Um, the tropics, only place in the U.S. that really hits the tropics is Hawaii. Hawaii is within the tropical zone. You will find days straight overhead. As I recall, the Tropic of Cancer is just below southern Florida. I don't know if Key West barely hits it. It's going to be close. The sun will be very close to overhead on the first day of summer if it's not straight overhead. But it's, you have to be really far south. Just going down to Florida isn't going to do it. You're not going to quite be into the tropical, the official tropical regions. Go further south than that, you will find days where the sun is straight overhead. Now, one of the questions for your solar project that I ask you, I'm answering you right now. Um, in fact, it's one of the questions I tell you to write as answer as part of your uh, analysis, is that June 21st, the sun is highest in the sky. It's the longest day of the year. June 21st is not normally the hottest day of the year. Same thing with December, sun is lowest in the sky for us in the Northern Hemisphere. It's the shortest day of the year, but December 21st is not usually the coldest day of the year. It could be. But it's not generally. It's generally colder in January and February. It's generally hotter in July and August. And why? Well, it takes time. You've got a big, giant Earth here to heat and cool. So it takes time. Even though this might be the most heat coming in, you're still adding a lot of heat later on, and you're kind of defrosting the Earth from a winter. So you're defrosting the northern hemisphere from winter. So the seasonal seasons will lag a little bit behind what this just tells you, right? Just based on this, we would say the sun should be, it should be the hottest on June 21st, and then it should slowly start to get cooler. But it takes time for the seasons to be able to change. All right, so let me finish this up, and I can go ahead and let you get working on the lab. Um, the underlying cause is the 23.5 degree tilt of the Earth's axis and not the changing distance between the Earth and the sun. And it really, it affects how long the seasons, how long, how directly the sun hits us and how the sunlight path affects different parts of the earth. So I just wanted to take a quick look at what I covered here. I did that one. I really have not gotten to most of the others. There's, I've covered all but like four of the last five questions. There's still a few of those. So if you're going to, I will cover those all on Monday. So if you want to look ahead, you can go look at my videos for those three, uh, those three sections uh, of the chapter. You can re use the textbook to get on those. If you want to wait until I talk about them, that's perfectly fine. But I do recommend that you look at the other. We've covered um, 11 of the 15 questions have already been covered. All right, questions.